and welcome to the Giving Voice to Depression podcast, produced in partnership with Mental Health America of Wisconsin. We're your co-hosts, Bridget and Terry. Each week, through intimate, candid conversations with guests, we explore different perspectives on and experiences of depression. We keep it real because the illness is real. We keep it hopeful because there truly is hope in spite of what depression tells you. We are not experts or therapists. We are sisters and best friends who live with depression and have learned that hearing others speak openly and without shame makes it easier to believe depression is a common and treatable illness, not a personal failing. You are far from alone. Good morning, Terry. Hello, Bridget. So you know how we end every episode saying, if you're hurting, speak up, and if someone else is, listen up. But we're not really sure that people without depression understand how hard it can be for someone really in it to have the clarity and ability to even identify what they're feeling as depression, let alone be able to describe their dark thoughts and the intervention or treatments that could interrupt them. It's a lot, often way too much, to expect from someone who's been dragged down to the bottom of depression's pit. Today's episode illustrates that in a very clear way. Just like it doesn't matter how nice your life looks from the outside, we've all heard, what do you have to be depressed about? It also doesn't matter how much you know about depression, anxiety, or suicide. Even an expert can be separated from all the rational, factual information about mental illnesses when they're in the throes of it. Today's guest, Sarah, specializes in suicide prevention at a medical college. For the past five years, she has been working with community groups evaluating suicide prevention programming. She is currently a PhD student, and her dissertation is about suicide, stress, and depression. Yet when her depression and anxiety brought her to the brink of suicide, none of that research or expertise helped. Sarah recently organized a lived experience panel for a symposium, listening as the panelists shared their personal experiences. She said she felt a little hypocritical that she didn't offer to share her story too. So she reached out to us to do just that. Here is Sarah giving her voice to depression. And so I think hearing that panel and thinking a lot about why I do this work, and I really believe strongly in the fact that stories help to reduce stigma. Um, I really do. And so I'm like, I need to practice what I preach, (laughs) you know? And, um, You know, somebody told me once that a lot of research is me-search, and so I think a lot about, you know, why I do the work that I do, and it's really sort of led back to my own story. Sarah's story of life with depression and anxiety spans much of her adult life, including postpartum depression to varying degrees with her children. But it came to a head two years ago when she had a health scare. I was only 39 years old, and... I was absolutely terrified, and it was like a switch flipped in my brain. Um, I went from being, you know, myself, how I usually, you know, present myself and how I feel, to being so trapped with anxiety that I could barely function. 
you know, I was coming to work and I was parenting and I was, um, you know, sort of doing all of the essential functions that I had to do in my life. But then I would get home and I would just kind of ball up into, um, you know, on my couch and I would, you know, have to really put a lot of effort into just like interacting with my kids and eating and sleeping. Sarah's medical tests came back clear and she thought that would be the end of it, but it wasn't. And so I think for me, it was really that combination of anxiety and depression that did it for me. It was having that anxiety constantly, 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 and then feeling depressed because of the anxiety. Every little symptom or twinge in my body was a major... I was going to the doctor a couple of times a week. I was, you know, going into my primary care doctor. And I mean, it was really embarrassing. I'm in public health. Like... I know that, you know, this was a bad use of like, healthcare resources. It was a bad use of my time. It was a poor use of my, I, I felt like it was a poor use of my doctor's time. But I just, it was like a compulsion. Like I couldn't help it. Like everything that I felt, I was absolutely convinced that I was dying and I was leaving my kids. And that was my biggest fear. And it just consumed me. Almost exactly two years ago, Sarah's thoughts morphed from a fear of dying to a plan for dying. And we had just had Thanksgiving, and I couldn't enjoy it. And I was laying in bed. It was the Sunday after Thanksgiving. And my husband was sleeping next to me, and my kids were asleep in their rooms. And I was just ready to, I mean, I was so, I was just feeling like I was so, um, such a failure. Like, I was, like, I, I didn't see that anything was ever going to be any different. I mean, I had been feeling this way for, for several months, and it was not getting better. In fact, it was getting worse, and I just, I was ready to just be done. I mean, that was my plan. Um, and really, the, the thing that stopped me from doing it was that I couldn't do it to my husband. I knew that he was going to wake up, and I, I just, I couldn't do that to him. And so I woke him up, and I said, I need help. Remember, Sarah understands suicide and its impact on a very deep level. And yet, as proof of depression's power, when it was her own mind betraying her... But I don't know. I don't know what to do. Um, you know, and again, I'm in this field. I've, I've done all the trainings. And even then, at that point, I, was, I wasn't sure what to do. I mean, I, I knew that I needed to get help. I didn't know if I should go to the ER. I didn't know what I should do. I didn't know if I should, I didn't know if I should do anything. I didn't, I was afraid that I would drive myself to the hospital and go up to the front desk and what do I say to these people? In that mental pain and chaos, Sarah realized something. And I remember thinking when I was, you know, trying to decide what to do, like, oh my gosh, if somebody didn't know what to do, this would be awful. Like, this would be... 10 times more terrifying than it is feeling like this and not really not having it. I mean, I knew, I guess I knew at the core, if, you know, go to the emergency department, like that's just what you do. But for Sarah, that choice added another layer of fear and shame. Because I work here, like I, you know, these are providers that I, you know, have done research projects with. And so I actually didn't come here. I went to a different emergency department where I don't know faculty. Um, when I walked in, I didn't know what I was going to say, and I just said, I'm, I'm very anxious. I'm scared. I feel a little bit suicidal. I don't know what to do. 
and they got me back right away and I was just really open and honest about my feelings and what I was you know if they asked the question are you thinking about killing yourself say yes they're not going to you're not going to get arrested you're not going to get committed you know at least I mean my experience the doctor was very calm um and so I'm thankful for that because I know that's likely not everybody's experience That what do you say when you get to the hospital question has come up in a number of interviews. So we want to share a helpful phrase a crisis line counselor told another guest of ours to use. He said, go to the emergency room and say, I'm having a psychological emergency. They'll know what that means and take it from there. It might be a good thing to have tucked in your pocket so you don't have to try to come up with the right words in a crisis. Back to Sarah. In the hospital, she was connected with a therapist and had her meds evaluated and changed. And while those were key components to her recovery, they are tools, not cures. Fixing it was a whole other... I mean, then you have to take that step. And unfortunately, our systems aren't, at least most systems, aren't set up in a way that makes that transition or navigates that for you. So you have to sort of be your own or your own advocate, you know, okay, I'm going to make an appointment with my primary care doctor now. And I mean, it was another probably six months before I started to come out of it. There were definitely plenty of days when I sat wrapped up on my couch under my weighted blanket, knees up to my chest, just frozen in place where I couldn't imagine feeling like I was going to be able to get up and go to work and listen to music and go for a run and go out to dinner with my husband. But I did. I'm very thankful for my primary care doctor, um, you know, being very open and honest with me that things were going to be difficult and, you know, this is not something that's going to be solved tomorrow, that you've got to stick with the medication, you've got to work with the therapy. And it did, I mean, but it was quite a, quite a long journey for me. So how does that experience impact the way you're going to do your job now and and the way you're doing your research? I think having an understanding of what that feels like. um, For me, I think reading stories and hearing stories, not necessarily of folks who died by suicide, but, you know, folks that are struggling or who have attempted, um, I think being able to identify with those people... um, brings an empathy to my research that I, you know, um, I didn't have before. I mean, it's definitely strengthened my um, desire to do this work and desire to try to do something about this. Um, you know, I think having that that lens now um, in my work just really, it's it's why I do it. It's what drives me to read really difficult narratives and read autopsy reports and think about, you know, what can we learn from this? How can we, you know, move, move things forward in terms of suicide prevention? So it's, it's, for me, it's research, but it's not research just to know, it's research to do something. It's research to action for me. That action, that caring intervention needs to happen way upstream before the person is in a mental health crisis. And since the people themselves may very well be unable to ask for the help they need, we have to be willing to step up and step in and offer it. Because the stakes are really high, and we might be the only person who does. 
you know, when we're seeing in our lives or in our society or in our jobs that people are potentially heading down a path that is a concern. If we know these people, if we know their lives, we know their situations, and something is sort of not quite right, how do we not put it on them to navigate their way through the system? How do we kind of wrap around them and help them get the care that they need? Because that's part of the problem that I have with a lot of the information that's out there, especially about suicide prevention and and, and those sorts of things is... I feel like it puts the onus on the person who is in a crisis or the person who's suffering to go get their own help, and that just is so wrong to me. Like it's you're not you're not in the space to do that for yourself. So I think we really have to learn to take care of each other and know what that looks like and know what that means. When you're in it, it's yeah. just your reality. Yeah, and you think you're never getting yeah. out. So I, it is a real conundrum because I want to, you know, yes, reach out. Yes, you know, tell somebody if you're starting to slide yeah. down that hill. But if you can't, if you can't, then yeah. I mean, and I, I mean, I'm sure that there are people who feel like they can't, or they don't know, or they're embarrassed, or they're, you know, whatever. Or there's, you know they're afraid of what their family is going to say. And for me, it wasn't stigma. It wasn't yeah. because I was afraid I'd be judged. I don't even think I had the energy to care enough yeah. to ask for help. I mean, I was right. just like there. I right. don't know how to explain it. It wasn't, yeah. there was no conscious decision. I have to keep this quiet or I don't deserve care or help. Yeah. Yeah. I, I felt the same. I mean, I was pretty open mm-hmm. with the fact that I was struggling with my my family in particular, um, you know, and my parents and, and my husband were, you know, incredibly supportive and, you know, checking in on me and my friends, my coworkers were supportive and checking in on me. But when you have that moment when you're by yourself, that was really when, when there was nobody, you know, everyone was sleeping, everyone was sort of doing their own thing. You know, that was really when it was like, oh... I think it was because I had that moment of terror that I even was thinking this, you know, and I had the capacity to do this. And I think if I had, if I was at, in the house by myself, I don't know. I mean, I was so just over it, like just over it at that point that it seemed like a logical solution for me. One of the things Sarah believes could have helped on that terrifying day is a safety plan. The ones that I've seen are really focused on understanding who the people are that you can reach out to, knowing your doctor's information. Um, One thing that I think is important is knowing your insurance information, Um, having that written down in a place where you can grab it. Um, There's a component on safety plans about means restriction. So, you know... Um, if you have a gun in the house, making sure it's locked up and, you know, all of that, or having medication in a lockbox, things like that. Um, and then there's a component on there, you know, things that I want to live for. And I think if I had a safety plan, my thing would have been my family. Um, and so it's kind of just that document that really helps sort of when you're in that place, thinking about, you know, what those things that you need to know, um, to keep yourself safe. I just think it's so yummy, Sarah, when you said wrap around them and help them get the care that they need. Because as we've all said over and over again, 
depression makes it pretty hard to do that for yourself. It certainly does. And that is why next week we'll be devoting the entire episode to talking about the value of having a plan in writing, which Sarah said would have helped her. Next week, we'll walk you through how to make one. We'll give some links to some apps and templates to help you create one. They're the mental health equivalent of having a backup generator on hand. You may not need it, but in an emergency, you'll surely be glad that you planned ahead. Big thanks to Sarah, because in her profession, it'd be very easy to sort of stay in the background and and let it be, you know, let her let her expertise speak for her as opposed to her experience. And it's a, a really helpful and beautiful thing that she was willing to do both. Yeah, absolutely. It's not their story. It's our story now. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Um, you know, there's something I want to bring up, Terry, and it's that we have a really robust Facebook community. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of listeners on the podcast, but the two groups seem to be different people, which is fine, but I would really like to sort of put out there, I guess, an ask for those of you listening, if you could jump over onto our Facebook page, check it out, see if the community resonates as a supportive place and tool for you. And if so, subscribe and join that community as well. You can search for Giving Voice to Depression in the search box on Facebook and it'll bring you right there. We'll also link to it with this episode. Thank you again, Sarah. Bye, Bridge. Bye, Terry. We truly hope that our podcast brings a little more understanding, helps you better articulate your experience of depression, or better understand how to support someone else's. We invite you to join us for daily posts on the Giving Voice to Depression Facebook page and on Twitter and Instagram at Voice Depression. It is a comfort to be among fellow travelers on depression's dark road. And remember, if you're struggling, speak up. If someone else is, listen up.